the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, these guys that are breaking the law to come across, they're the bad guys, and they're the ones we got to get. I had a lot of blind spots in my views on what is moral and what is worth enforcement. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. The big change where it turned from a gut instinct of like, oh, this doesn't really feel right, these guys don't seem that bad, to, oh my God, what have I done? I listen and I read a lot of stories on YouTube and I know <laughs> immigration's not a problem. It's a combination of problems. Immigration's actually two problems. One, we got a bunch of people who want to be in our country because we're number one. And B stands for border. We have a border that's too long to protect. Have you looked at a map recently? It's a 2,000 mile dotted line. Well, no wonder so many people are getting through. It's a dotted line that's 2,000 miles long. Hola. Do you know how long the Panama Canal is? Probably not. It's only 10 miles. I came here to tell you that when we issue my shorter border order, immigration won't be a problem anymore. It's simple. We move the border to the Panama Canal, which is short and very secure, what with all those locks, and then we take over all the countries between here and there. We'll make a bunch of money in taxes, and the border will be shorter and easier to keep in order. You're totally welcome. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. Somehow, I, I don't think that Robert Mack's shorter border order is going to make it onto the president's desk. He might tweet about it, though. In, in any case, that that's one of my favorite clips that I've found on Drybar Comedy. Um, I think Robert Mack is right, though, that a lot of people do want to come here because the U.S. is number one. It's a top destination for freedom and prosperity. But legal immigration is time-consuming and highly restricted and out of reach for many people to the south of us, and illegal immigration is unquestionably an expensive, complicated, arduous, and dangerous enterprise, even if you are coming here to seek asylum. And I wouldn't expect a comedian to also note that there's also a tremendous and growing amount of violence on this porous border as cartels continue to smuggle weapons, drugs, and, and people from Mexico into the United States, some who've spent time down there assert that the cartels basically run the border. I, I haven't been down there myself, so I don't know if I would necessarily subscribe to that strong of language. Um, but 
I wouldn't mind a few jokes about that, honestly, because if we don't laugh about it, we are certainly going to cry. Um, a van full of, of women and children were gunned down in broad daylight by the Sinaloa cartel just the other day. And it's a mess. It's, it's a mess down there for sure. But Robert Mack is right that we need to understand the problems and we need solutions. Of course, his uh, bit was an oversimplification, but it was also hilarious. And um, that is where good people often disagree on the solutions. And hopefully they let their experiences and facts shape their perspective. My next guest here um, is here to tell us how his experience on the border changed his mind. He is a writer and former U.S. Border Patrol agent having served in both Iraq and Afghanistan in the United States Army and National Guard. He's written for the Daily Beast and Cato Unbound and has given interviews with Reason.org and Libertarian.org. Joshua Childress, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Did I pronounce your name right? Yes. Excellent. And do you like to be called Georgie? Yeah. Is that Okay, perfect. Awesome. Okay. Uh, before we get started, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast to get notified when a new episode is posted every Friday morning. I do bi-weekly breakdown sessions where I analyze these interviews and see what we can learn about how people change their minds in addition to talking about the news and the issues of our day and the big ideas that shape them. So if you have a friend or two who would find this particular episode of interest, please don't hesitate to share it with them right now. And with that, let us continue. So Joshua, you you served in the army and then you became a border patrol agent. Why did you make that initial decision um, to, to go work on the border? Like, what were your goals and views on border security and immigration at the time? So um, on the advice of a, a friend of mine who I'd met through the National Guard, uh, put in an application with the Border Patrol. And that is, for anybody interested, a long and annoying process. Um, but it, it took about two years, a, a little under two years um, from the time I applied to when I actually got hired on. Um, so I'd kind of, it had, it had just been in the back background and I, I didn't really have strong views on immigration one way or the other, other than, you know, I listened to a lot of talk radio and they always said that, oh, well, you know, there's an invasion on the Southern border. They're taking all our jobs. They're coming to get welfare and, you know, we need to protect the border and, and maintain our sovereignty. So I, I kind of bought into that line, assumed that that was, you know, more or less correct and, and went along with it. Um, so that was, that was kind of the mindset I went into the border patrol and going to the academy with. Can you tell me a little bit about what your day to day responsibilities and life was like after the training? Right. So, uh, you know, after I'd completed training and I was out of probationary period, um, every day I would show up to work. Uh, I, I started out on, on midnights, which I actually really liked. I'm kind of a night owl. Um, uh, show up at midnight, get your, you know, go to the armory and check out your, your, your guns and your truck and anything you think you're going to need for your shift. Go listen to a daily briefing and, um, you're assigned a, a specific area. We patrolled anywhere from the sand dunes in the Imperial Valley of California over to the Gila mountains, um, east of Yuma, Arizona. So that was our area. So you got, you know, it was divided up into, into sections. And so you went to your area. And you basically just 
patrolled back and forth, looking for footprints, looking for signs of entry, looking for anything strange that was going on, and you just investigate until you figure out what it is. Well, that muster, that 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 briefing that we would go to every day, they they tended to highlight anytime somebody with a, a real bad criminal record was was apprehended, you know, they'd highlight that and they'd really harp on it. And it makes you feel good inside. You're like, wow, I, I really am. I'm protecting this country. I'm, you know, these, I'm getting the bad guys. And they'd say that all the time, you know, go out and get the bad guys. Um, so you, you know, you, you get into it. You're, you know, I have the military background. I have that kind of hard charging, go get them mindset. And, you know, I wanted to, to do my job and I, I, Felt like I was pretty good at doing my job most of the time. So how did you end up changing your mind and then leaving the border patrol? Like what were the, were there specific instances or conversations or experiences of course that led you to decide that you couldn't do that any longer? Well, it, it was very gradual. Um, I mean, the whole time through the Academy, they're teaching you all of the ins and outs of immigration law. And so you get this idea learning all of this law that, wow, there are all these, you know, myriad ways that you can do it the right way. You know, you can apply for all these different visas or there's all these family exceptions and and different uh, categories and classifications. And it's like you you get this idea that, well, if if somebody's just coming across illegally, they're just being lazy or they've got something to hide and, and, uh, you know, we got to get them. And that's, that's very, very much reinforced. Well, I mean, the first year in the Border Patrol, you don't have a chance to think about <laughs> whether what you're doing is right or wrong. Like, the training is pretty intense. You know, the academy is, is I, I slept three or four hours a night, every night, and I didn't, I, I drank maybe a couple of times. Like, it was just tons of reading law books, tons of studying, tons of just preparing. Um, and then after the academy, which is six months, uh, you do a uh, field training for another four months and then you're doing a journeyman uh, ride along for the next two months after that. So your full first year, you're just basically trying to keep your head above water and not get kicked out and not make people hate you so that you can keep this job. Um, but it was, you know, a couple of years in that and, and things were fairly slow. So it wasn't like I was just catching people every day all the time. There was, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, you know, Yuma used to be very, very busy and um, things slowed down partially because of, you know, fences and stuff being built, partially because of the economic downturn in 2008. Um, but Yuma really slowed down. Uh, so <laughs> unfortunately, I had a lot of time to think and, you know, listen to podcasts and, and, and audiobooks while I was working. But uh, so after a few years, I just started taking inventory and thinking, you know, these bad guys that I'm catching just don't really seem all that bad. Um, uh, I, you know, my time spent in college, I worked with plenty of immigrants uh, there. I used to work construction before the border patrol and I worked with plenty of immigrants in that field. And so I knew there were good ones. You know, I knew there were, they weren't all, they didn't all fit this like bad guy mold, but I figured well, these guys that are breaking the law to come across, you know, they're the bad guys and they're the ones we got to get. But I started seeing people and I started thinking, you know, they just don't really fit this bad guy mold, um, which. Like, so I, tell me more about that. Like what, what, 
Well, what were these people like? Uh, I mean, much like the the guys that that I, I, I work construction with. I mean, most of them, when you talk to them, they were very humble. Um, they were very ashamed that you'd caught them that they you know that they were in this position in the first place. Um, so it wasn't like you know you you if you listen to the news you get this idea of like these you know drug fueled violent maniacs and it's like this is a guy that you might live next door to and never hear a peep from um, not to say that the violent folks didn't exist it just wasn't that those were not the i started after a few years realizing or or and i can only speak to my experience in you know in the yuma sector but i just didn't see this big scary boogeyman that we were always talking about Okay, so how did you arrive at your current position now, which we'll we'll get to in a second, but you said mm. that you had a lot of time on the border and you were listening to podcasts and right. radio and stuff like that. Okay, so how did this how did this ball get rolling? So, uh I mentioned I used to listen to a lot of uh, AM talk radio. I've always kind of had a libertarian streak about me, but you know, the older I got, I start I did start to kind of uh, flirt with the, you know, the small government conservatives, even though I think that seems kind of like a, uh, <laughs> uh an oxymoron. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a brief period where it seemed like an, an actual, you know, during the, the very early stages of the tea party, there seemed like a, a kind of a, that some of them actually meant it, but I haven't seen anything in years and years and years that made, makes me believe such a thing as a small government conservative actually exists. But, um, so I started moving away from talk radio and I've, you know, found these amazing things called podcasts where you can just type any word into the search engine and like come up with tons of people who are spending their spare time talking about things that you might be interested in. So I started looking into, you know, deeper into these libertarian ideas because I always thought it was weird that I was libertarian except for, you know, foreign policy and immigration. Um, so I kind of started seeking out like, well, what are these libertarian ideas on immigration that I'm missing? So I started seeking these out. Um, Reason podcast was one of them. Uh, uh, unregistered with Thaddeus Russell was very, and he was one of the first people to have me on his podcast after I had left. His was very, very influential on me. I mean, there's a lot, there's it's too much to name, but um, essentially I just started listening to these other people's ideas and then like internalizing them and, and wrestling with them, I started realizing I had a lot of blind spots in, in my views on, you know, what is moral and what is, what is worth enforcement. Um, and it actually kind of the, I, I would say the genesis of, of the big change where it turned from a gut instinct of like, oh, this doesn't really feel right. These guys don't seem that bad to, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> like, uh, I, so Thaddeus Russell, who was, you know, he's a podcaster and he, he has these, he does these, uh, um, seminars once in a while and he was doing one in LA. So I wanted to go and argue with him even though he's one of my, you know, favorite podcasters and I loved his views and I thought they were very interesting. I, I wanted to argue with him about immigration. So I started to write an essay about why I believe my views on immigration were correct. Um, and, uh, 
I, I got like three paragraphs in and realized, oh, this argument is complete crap. <laughs> like, it, and it was essentially the the to to boil it down. My argument was, well, I have a house, I have a family, and I put a wall around my house. So, what is to say that I shouldn't have a wall around my country and force people to to uh, knock at the door before they come in? Um, which is, I mean, that's a pretty popular. Most people, I think, that that have views on immigration believe in some version of that. Uh, but if you if you take that to the logical conclusion, well, most households are run in some sort of dictatorial fashion. You know, the parents make the rules, the kids don't get much say, they do what they're told. Um, and the country is not a family. <laughs> it's not meant to be a family. And I don't personally want my government to represent the way my household is run. You know, I don't want my government who's supposed to be representing me, not ruling me. I don't want them to be able to tell me every move I can make in my house. So I did, I just, I realized that that's, it's not analogous. You can't carry that, that family argument that, that, well, my house has a wall around it. So should my country. It just doesn't, it doesn't translate from one to the other. Um, and when I realized I couldn't write a simple essay to back up my own views, um, then I had a, had some soul searching to do. Um, so I ended up going to that that conference and talking with that Russell. And um, yeah. which conference was this? Uh, he so he calls them um, Renegade University. So he he's done one and he's done one edgy. What's that? Very edgy. <laughs> he is. Uh, he is quite edgy. Um, um, so I went to his event in LA because it was it was pretty close to Yuma where I was living at the time, and um, <laughs> I told him what I did for a living, and he's like, "Well, I don't talk to cops." So he's you know mostly mostly <laughs> mostly joking, but uh, you know I I kind of just laid back and I sat back and 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 talked to people and absorbed, but I didn't really ask a lot of questions about immigration. But then. You know, he was gracious enough to uh, to talk to me after the event. And so we, you know, spitballed a little bit. I was like, I, you know, here's where I'm at. I don't under, you know, I don't know that the, what I'm doing doesn't feel like the right thing to do, but I don't know what to do. You know, I've built a family here. I've got a house. I've got this career. I don't know where to go from here. So he gave me some, you know, Brian Kaplan from George Mason University uh, gave me some mm -hmm. resources to go read about, check into. Cause he, and he never tried to tell me like, oh, you're wrong and you, you're an evil person. You're a Nazi. He never said any of that. He was just like, yeah, if you're interested in, in changing your mind, like here's the people that know about it. So I went and in fact, I, I downloaded a bunch of stuff and went to work when I got back and listened to it in my, tr in my truck at work. And so that would have been, I think, uh, I think the end of 2016, maybe. I'm not, not exactly sure on the timeline. But, uh, yeah, I started listening to Brian Kaplan. That was kind of the first one. And he's an economics professor. And he's like, yeah, the economics uh, are not as, as big and scary as everybody tries to say. Like, there's, there's a lot of evidence saying that, you know, it'll actually 
uh, boost our economy and, and, and create more jobs and, and more of the kind of jobs that, that we would want if we have a steady supply of, of unskilled labor coming in. And that was, oddly enough, like that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin where, you know, okay, I have a moral disagreement with what I'm doing, but I don't, you know, if it's going to be bad economically for the country, I don't want to foist that upon everybody else. But when I heard an economist and a pretty renowned and, you know, well-known economist speaking to this and, and, and pointing out that, you know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom and it, and there are, you know, there's reason to believe that it could be. Well, in fact, he just came out with a graphic novel, um, called Open Borders. And it's, uh, I've, I've read it. It's an amazing piece of work. I encourage everybody to go out and buy it and, or, you know, borrow it or whatever it takes and read it. I mean, it's a, it's an excellent, excellent argument made for why immigration isn't as scary as everybody says that it is. Okay. So you mentioned that you, you had the, this moral quandary with what you were doing. What, what was what was the core of the the moral issue okay. that you were wrestling with so, when you were on the border? So I've I mean I've ex- so I've explained that I, I had kind of a, a libertarian streak, um, and that that streak has has blossomed since. But uh, uh, so essentially, my view was that um, nobody deserves to be arrested or jailed for anything nonviolent, or and especially anything that has no victim. So that's my, you know, that's my opposition to the drug war is if you want to recreationally do drugs or if you want to do drugs to the point where it kills you, I don't care. That's not my decision. That's your decision. And nobody should be able to tell you otherwise. So that's why I could never, ever, 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 ever be a a cop, you know, like a street cop because they are asked to enforce all kinds of, you know, Speeding. I like driving fast. How can I give somebody a speeding ticket? Um, I mean, the the list can go on. But when I started to view, when I I guess when I realized that nobody is being harmed by a person walking across an imaginary line in the sand, um, and all of the other all of the other scary things about immigration aren't actually immigration related, and there are other ways to deal with those scary things. So I guess what I realized was I was locking people up, taking away their freedom uh, for doing something nonviolent. And when I realized when, when that context, you know, came into my head and I realized that that's what I was doing. And essentially I was just a cop. Um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't in good conscience participate in that anymore. Okay. So you mentioned that, these other things that people have problems with aren't immigration related. Do you mean more of the national security issue, like with terrorists coming across the border? Right. What what exactly does that look like? Um, Well, yeah. So, so terrorists coming across the border. um, Scott Horton wrote an excellent book called uh, fool's errand time to end the war in Afghanistan. And he does an excellent job of explaining um, why our foreign policy is more of a threat to our security than anything else. And that basically that is 
us having that's a bigger threat than well so potentially so our foreign policy having all these bases everywhere and bombing all these you know innocent people and droning all these innocent people and even the you know when we drone the right guy but a bunch of innocent people are collateral like that policy is creating the quote-unquote terrorists that we're all so afraid of even though you have a better chance of dying at the hands of police in the United States than you do of terrorists. But um, so our foreign policy is causing a, any terror threat that exists, not our immigration policy. So if you're afraid of terrorists, well, let's bring the troops home. Um, let, let countries be sovereign the way that we want to be sovereign and let countries deal with their own situations and and stop being the world's police. So if if terrorism is what you're worried about it, immigration is not the solution, foreign policy is the solution. Same thing. So what does the what does the border look like in the in the libertarian mind in your mind? Like if if you could snap your fingers, was there a way to change border patrol policy to a point where you would not have a moral problem? working there it's i I think it's possible so i mean i have my i hate i don't like the word utopian but i have my view of like an end goal of how i think things could be if we if we worked hard enough at them but i think you know without doing away with the border patrol without doing away with well screw ice we don't really need ice but well, and I've got a plan for them too, but I'll, hopefully I'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, Alex, so Alex Narasta and, and David Beer from Cato, like those guys, these guys are rock stars when it comes to immigration policy. They do tons of great work, um, on the fact that illegal immigrants actually commit less crime than native born across the spectrum. I mean, and they have data to back it up. It's 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 very interesting work that they do. Um, but one thing that Alex Narasta points out is, I think it was under Eisenhower, there was the Bracero program. So uh, the Bracero program was basically like anybody who, you know, hadn't murdered anybody and showed up at the border and said, hey, I want to go uh, do some agricultural work. Can I wor- have a work permit? They were given a work permit uh, during that time. Uh, illegal immigration plummeted by 95%. The only time that that's ever happened. It's never happened from any kind of enforcement or walls or anything else, just allowing people to come in and do work and have a legal way of doing so. And I'd say as, as far as like, not my anarchist utopia, but like just a kind of a real world, something very feasible that we could do right now. Yeah. Open it up. And if you've never committed a violent crime against anybody and we don't have any good reason to keep you out, okay, here's a work permit, come in and and work. And I think that from my experience, from talking to the immigrants coming across, most people that I spoke to didn't want to come and put down roots. They wanted to come and work for a while, save some money and go back to Mexico and buy a piece of land or go back to Guatemala and buy a piece of land or something like that. Um, in fact, my last boss here in the United States had a green card, um, and he was from Mexico and he's like, I'm not going to retire here. I'm going to work here long enough to buy a ranch in Mexico and move back to Mexico. And he goes back to Mexico every weekend, but he's a legal resident. So 
Um, I just think that the easiest way, the absolute easiest way is to, if you don't, if there's no good reason to keep you out and you want to just come work and I'm not, this is not me saying let's give citizenship to everybody or residency to anybody. Cause in those, in those cases, if you do get a bad egg, it's really, really, really hard. I mean, nearly impossible to get rid of anybody once they have citizenship or, or residency. So say you make a mistake and get somebody who is violent, you can't get rid of them once they have citizenship or residency. So, uh, a broad right speaking of the of the violence though how would how would one well what what would the vetting process if any look like in terms of giving people work permits because i don't think all south american countries have robust databases for their criminals that we have access to right? i can't tell you how glad i am that you brought that up back to ice so um since we're since we don't really have any need for ice anymore um we can give all of the ICE agents and all of the people that work for ICE, we can give them an option to go be, um, to go work in the consular consular offices or the embassies in all these South American countries. And they can assist in the vetting process of applicants. So, so the vetting process would take place in those countries before they come. Well, up. yeah, because I, I, I think that makes the most sense because, a lot of those places don't have great record keeping. They don't have, you know, they're not um, maybe as connected, uh, tech, you know, as far as technology goes. Um, so if you have people down there to assist with the vetting and they can go and talk to the local police and see if there's, you know, because the, these smaller villages and I mean, even in the cities and the neighborhoods, the local police are going to know who they've dealt with on a regular basis. They're going to know who the cartel members are. They're going to know who the, the bad actors are. So if we have people down there assisting in the vetting process, I mean, no, no system is going to be perfect, but I think that's a hell of a lot better and a hell of a lot cheaper than what we're doing now. It seems like you would need like a lot more ICE agents to be able to have that kind of reach though, right? Well, the vast majority are coming from... Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala. Um, and, you know, they're coming to you. They're coming to you and asking to be vetted. So, and I, I haven't put a ton of thought into this. That's just kind of a, a mm -hmm. kitschy way to say, well, we're not going to just fire all the ICE agents. We'll give them an, an opportunity to go work somewhere else. Um, but, um, well, so back to the drug war. Um, I think if you want to do away with most of the violence in that area, um, our, we're, we're not going to stop anybody from doing drugs ever. I mean, people are going to do drugs if they're so inclined. So we have the choice, and I know this podcast isn't about uh, drugs, but I mean, I think that's another one of those scary things about immigration that people, the violence is almost entirely drug-related. And what's not drug related is, is. So you feel like if drugs were above board, then we wouldn't have this sort of cartel violence, a sort of like territorial, I'm in control of the border type situation. Right. I mean, there, the, the cartels market would almost entirely go out from underneath them. So if, if American businesses were able to make safe and well, you know, well made and well regulated, and I'm I'm not talking about cannabis necessarily. Although anecdotally, I can tell you that 
the, the cannabis coming through our area essentially dried up once all of the Western states um, legalized everything. I mean, that, that. Right. And the argument is that, is that to, 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 to compensate for losing the cannabis market, they turn to more cocaine right. and, and human trafficking and things like that. Right. Um, but Portugal is, is a beautiful, um, experiment in, in the making right now. And they've seen some very, very promise. They've, de- they've decriminalized everything. Um, so use on almost every level across the board has declined. Uh, use rates in youth has, have declined. Um, death, death rates from overdose have declined because they have safe use of facilities now. So if we institute all of that stuff here, I mean, it's the same thing as, as prohibition during alcohol for, for alcohol. As soon as, as alcohol became legal, they moved on to other things. The, the mafia that was controlling the, those, those, um, that part of the, the, the black market, they just moved on to something else, gambling, prostitution, etc. So, I mean, I, is that what we're looking at though? I mean, what, what, to what point do you continue to decriminalize things to the point where actually you are decriminalizing things that do hurt other people? For instance, the, the trafficking of, of children into sex slavery and that sort of thing. Right. But so if, if you decriminalize basic, uh, prostitution, just, you know, man or woman goes and finds partner, gives the money, has sex. Those people, those, those sex workers, they are going to be the vanguard of, of human trafficking. So if human trafficking exists, they're going to be the first ones that are going to be able to recognize it. Cops aren't going to be able to recognize it. Nowhere near as well as the sex worker on the ground will be able to recognize it. So they'll be the first to be able to say, you know what, what I'm doing is, is my enterprise, but what's going on over there seems forced and coerced. Go look at that. Um, so I, I 100% uh, support decriminalizing sex work um, because, and it's the same thing with immigration. If you, if you only hand work permits to peaceful people who want to come and work, then the only people left coming across the illegal way are people who can't meet that basic criteria of, well, I've never murdered anybody. So the border patrol is going to have a lot less work to do. They're going to have a lot less stuff to sift through. If the only people trying to come across the border illegally are people that can't walk up to a port of entry and say, Hey, I'm, I'm a a peaceful person and uh, I'd like to just come work. And it's the same thing with, with sex work versus human trafficking. If, sex work is decriminalized and men and women are able to, to do their trade unmolested Mm -hmm. by the, by law enforcement. Well, then law enforcement can focus on the actual, which, you know, seems from what, what I've read to be a a much smaller than, than uh, advertised uh, instances of human trafficking. So that's kind of where my philosophy on, on any kind of law enforcement lies is if we stop, you know, if we stop like arresting ladies for selling churros in the, in the New York train station or, you know, any of these other absurd things, a guy eating a sandwich on a, a, a subway platform, 
these are all videos I've seen this week of cops wasting taxpayer dollars enforcing stuff that make no difference whatsoever. So if they stop wasting all that time harassing and shaking down the public for these tiny infractions that shouldn't be illegal in the first place, then they can focus on the murderers and the rapists and the human traffickers, etc. Interesting. Would you have changed your views if you hadn't gone to that conference and talked to Brian Kaplan? Uh, to Thaddeus Russell and, lear- and Thaddeus learned Russell, about yes. Brian Kaplan? Um, I think it would have taken a lot more time. I think I was on that road anyways. Um, but I think without, without being, you know, given, you know, without being thrown a few bones of like, Hey, here's some places to start looking for the answers you're seeking. Um, I think that was, was essentially, um, a little bit of a, a push in the direction I was already going. So I, I think, I would have eventually come to that conclusion, but uh, it might have taken a couple more years. Yeah, you've also obviously done a lot of reading and a lot of research on the subject. With that, why do you think that immigration hawks or border security hawks hold their views? Do you think they're like similar to the way you were and sort of subscribing to the the talk radio talking points or like, why do people want, want so many like Trump's base, for instance, want so badly to hashtag build the wall? What do you see as their reasoning or their motivation? So I, I, I disagree with a lot of what I hear from, I, I try to avoid the left, right thing, but mm-hmm. I hear a lot of people say, well, oh, the, the Border Patrol's racist, the ICE is racist, but I, I don't buy that. Like, that's, uh, that was not my my experience being inside the beast. Like, I, it's not a racism thing. Uh, xenophobia might be a little bit more correct because that's just, it's an irrational fear. It's an irrational fear of the other. And whether anybody's going to admit it or not, we view those coming from, especially from third world countries, you know, well, maybe not all of them can read and they don't all have, you know, their clothes look a little funny and, you know, maybe they're a little shorter and their faces aren't shaped the same as ours. And, you know, so there's this other, and you hear that in the way they're spoken about all the time, you know, immigrants are, they're not viewed as people for one. Um, They're not, maybe, Maybe or not not equal. Not especially not equal. Especially not equal. But it there's just something scary about those who are not like us. Um and I think that's I think that's what it comes down to is just an an unbased and un uh, an irrational fear of well, this doesn't look like what I'm used to, so I'm just going to find reasons to (laughs) not like it. Um and I I, I I fell into that. I I did. I felt the same way. But um, yeah, I I think it's I think it's a combination of we've been conditioned to think that this is the way things are. This is the threat that we're facing. Um, and and it's just right. And it's, right. And it's kind of like two different issues because because sometimes you'll talk to people about immigration and like the people that you said you most often picked up 
and they'll be very sympathetic to that. But then they're like, but we have to have a wall. We have to have security. So in terms of like the build the wall people and the security people who are concerned about terrorism and, and murderers and, and especially the cartel violence, what, where, where, where do you think they're coming from deep down? Like, well, what are they building that off? Well, of? if you, I don't watch the news. I curate my own. I go out and you must be a happy person. Then <laughs> <laughs> I do feel happier than I, than I used to be. Um, I mean, I do, I, I try to stay informed and I try to read, but I, 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 well, for one, I don't even have cable, so I wouldn't have a, an outlet for, for network news. But I mean, if you do watch that, it's, it's all fear all the time. I mean, you're being conditioned to be afraid of all things all the time. Um, that's, that's what's sensational. That's what people want to talk about. So if you do fall into that category of a, 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 a news watcher, a regular basis news watcher, and you're not looking at it critically every single day, um, then it's, it's really easy. And I'm not trying to like down, you know, downplay these people. My granny's one of them. She has no idea like what the hell I'm doing. She's like, you gave up this great job and this great retirement and this security for what? Some beliefs and philosophies like, you know, she's a Fox News watcher and that that's I'm definitely not denigrating my granny because she's like the greatest greatest mm-hmm. lady I know. But right. I mean that it's really hard to pierce the exterior of of well, I mean, those are walls that people have built around their their own beliefs. Um people want to feel secure and they they will defend you know, what they, what they believe until they, until they challenge it. And maybe, you know, I'm not saying everybody needs to think like me, but I think nothing has been healthier for me personally than to look inside and challenge things that I held to be true. Cause I, I found a lot of them to be useless. What is the most persuasive argument you'd make to somebody may, who maybe you, you're just sharing a long elevator ride with to get them thinking like somebody who is more or less in favor of the status quo of catching everybody who comes across the border and detaining them for prosecution or just deporting them. What do you say? What do you say to that person to get them on the same path that you took? Um, well, I, I- Back to you know the 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 very beginning of of my my questioning it was seeing people that I was apprehending, seeing how my actions were ap- affecting them, and putting myself in their shoes of would I do the same thing in their um, in their situation, which uh, I kind of had the same thing in Afghanistan like <laughs> we didn't really have any Taliban or Al Qaeda anywhere near us. We had a bunch of townspeople who were mad that we were in their town and they were, you know, they would take shots at us every once in a while. And, you know, I didn't like it, but after a while I started to realize, you know what, if uh, the Afghan army came and showed up in my town and, and started, you know, pushing me around, I'd probably take some shots at them too. So I think not just when it comes to immigration, I mean, God, anything, a, a street cop, Put yourself 
in the shoes of the person you're arresting for eating a sandwich on a subway platform. I mean, put yourself put yourself in other people's shoes on a regular basis. I think the I think we're all going to do do well to like anything that we disagree with or think that we hold a higher ground on. Put yourself in the shoes of the person that you uh you disagree with and um I mean and I'm I'm not talking about just like think about it for a second. I mean, really like do some research do, or talk to help talk to somebody. That's perfect. Find somebody who did make that journey, find out why they did it, find out what it was actually like. Um, so, so like interview you. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I, so, but now that I've changed my mind uh, about this one narrow thing, um, I'm, I'm now a libtard and a commie <laughs> and um, a lefty and a snowflake, um, uh, any, any number of other things, but like, yeah, it, People that I, you know, had known for a long time, just this one decision I made made them think completely different about me. So, um, you know, we can, I don't know. Yeah. Can't go wrong with, with empathy and, and, and suggesting that, that people do more research. Um, thank you, Joshua, for joining me today and taking this time to explain what it was like on the border and why you changed your mind. Um, I think this will give the listener at home a lot to chew on and hopefully we can come, um, this podcast will revisit this subject from other angles in the future as well. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been a pleasure. And yeah, I honestly, I'm not, my goal is not to like go out and change people's minds. Um, make people think good. That That's I, if you, if you, if anybody listening to this thinks twice, about how they used to feel about immigration. Even if I didn't change your mind, like think twice about it. Um, or Yeah. And that's the goal. That's, that's one of the missions of this podcast. So I really appreciate it. Or if it. I'm able to bring any kind of clarity, I, I count that as a win. Like if, if you understand things better now and you still feel the same that you did, I've still, I still feel like I've done my work that, you know, bringing clarity and just helping people to think about things a little differently. Yeah, Absolutely. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at 180cast and you can follow Joshua on Twitter as well. I think it, what's Josh your handle? Josh D. Childress. Josh D. Yes. Childress. Excellent. <laughs> so go follow him on Twitter um, and, and, and catch up uh, with his writing as well. You can call or text the flip phone if you have thoughts on this episode, which I know you do, at 323-999-1802. You can flip out. You can try to flip my position or tell me about your own flip-flop. That's 323-999-1802. And as always, I do suggest and hope that you take the time to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you like it because that really helps grow this audience and make this podcast as successful as it can possibly be. You can follow me, of course, at Georgie underscore Borman. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. Executive producer, Kevin McCullough. Music by Rufy Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.